What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So when the Mueller report came out, Bill Barr had gone through and redacted big chunks of it. There were big blocks of just black lines and black blocks of text and things in the Mueller report. And the, uh, the judge, or one of the judges in one of these lawsuits, um, uh, had said, I want to see what's behind those redactions. And in part as a result of a lawsuit from BuzzFeed, actually, a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit. And so some of the redactions got removed, and this was reported on last Friday. And frankly, I think very few people picked up on it. The headline over at the New York Times last Friday was, Mueller Report Details Highlight Trump's Interest in Emails Damaging to Clinton. And then the subtitle was the Justice Department, that would be Bill Barr, had kept the newly revealed information secret while it was investigating Roger Stone and only released it in response to a lawsuit, which is what happened. So what did we learn when these redactions were uncovered? Well, up until last Friday, what we knew was that Donald Trump had reached out to Russia publicly. He said, you know, uh, Russia, if you're listening, find Hillary Clinton's emails. You, you know, you'll be rewarded by the American media. And we know within hours, Russian operatives started doing just that. And then gave him what he wanted via WikiLeaks. So we know that, you know, Trump asked for the help and Russia provided the help. What we didn't know until last Friday was that Trump knew that this was happening and was in the loop. His argument up to this point and his argument, and, you know, frankly, this didn't even really get covered in the impeachment trial, was, but his argument has always been that he didn't know. He was outside that. He had plausible deniability. Well, when you take away those redactions, what it turns out, what Bill Barr was covering up in the Stone Report, and who knows, maybe he tried to fire Berman just to keep to get this off the front pages, um, was that Trump was getting a blow-by-blow reports on this stuff via Roger Stone, that Roger Stone was the man in the middle. There's a, a great op-ed by uh, John Storr uh, from the uh, editorial board over at Raw's story. He says, indeed, cheating was confirmed on Friday. The U.S. Department of Justice released unredacted parts of Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian interference in 2016 involving Roger Stone. And it's abundantly clear that there was a link between Trump and Kremlin operatives attacking Democrat Hillary Clinton. That link was Stone. So that means that Donald Trump not only became president by virtue of cheating, involving a foreign government, which he had asked for, which he had solicited, but that that cheating was something that he was carefully monitoring throughout the process, and his guy, Roger Stone, was, if not coordinating, certainly, uh, uh, I don't know the word, facilitating is probably not the right word, but he, he was there, he was, in, he was in on it, essentially. 
which means that Trump committed fraud with a foreign government against the American people to become president. He defrauded us the same way he defrauded students who had bought uh, attendance at Trump University. The same way that he defrauded, I mean, he just goes on and on, right? You know, people who are buying apartments in, in Trump Soho, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. He violated our nation's sovereignty. He seized the right to rule, writes John Storr. He seized the right to rule without the consent of the ruled. I mean, go back to the Declaration of Independence, you know, to create a new government by the consent of the governed. And he's going to pull it off again, once a cheater, always a cheater. And he's trying to do it this time with China. And now we have a report from Bloomberg that nine different Chinese officials have come forward and said, yeah, we would much rather have Donald Trump than Joe Biden. Because Joe Biden will create those anti-China alliances of Western democracies. Joe Biden will promote democratic values, small d, what used to be called Republican values by the founders. Joe Biden will promote that. The idea that we should have elections and that the will of the people should be, you know, what runs the country, essentially. And so here we have a president who didn't get there that way. He cheated his way in. And what's he doing now with the spoils of that? Well, he's cheating to get himself and his buddies rich. He's looting our country. I mean, in big ways and small, some of the small ways, for example, Congress appropriated billions, with a B, billions of dollars for a nationwide contact tracing and testing program. Trump has failed to distribute $14 billion of that money. He's just sitting on it. We don't need no stinking testing. We don't need no stinking contact tracing. Chuck Schumer and Patty Murray Uh, Democratic senators from New York and Washington State, respectively, sent a letter to Alex Azar, the former head of Eli Lilly, who oversaw the doubling of insulin prices there. He's now the Secretary of Health and Human Services, saying, uh, why don't you distribute that money? (laughs) You're sitting on billions of dollars for testing and contact tracing. The states need this money. The Centers for Disease Control was supposed to pass out nearly $4 billion. The money was given to the CDC, and they were supposed to pass it out for surveillance and contact tracing at state and local levels and with Native American tribes, tribal territories. And they were given $2 billion for free testing for uninsured people. That money has not been passed out. So, you know, you've got the giant con, the giant grift going on with that regard. In the meantime, you know, 10,000 Americans have been arrested in the protests since George Floyd was murdered. Yet, over the last 10 years, the banksters of America, since 2009, have supervised the transition of a $19 trillion in wealth from the middle class into the pockets of the very rich. America's billionaires have seen their wealth soar by $434 billion just since the coronavirus hit us. Corporations got $500 billion in bailouts, $135 billion in tax breaks. Trump and his buddies got billions of dollars in bailouts and tax breaks, specifically for real estate developers like Donald Trump. Amazon just paid 1.2% tax rate last year. Chevron, Halliburton, Netflix haven't paid a dime in recent years. We lose $70 billion a year because corporations use offshore tax havens. We're doing nothing about this. I mean, the CARES Act, right, the, 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 this thing that, that gave $1,200 to, to you and me, to average Americans, went out to 150 million households. That was nothing. 43,000 of America's richest people got an average of $1.6 million from the CARES Act in the form of tax breaks. Principally, real estate developers and hedge fund owners who are riding out the pandemic on their private yachts or on their secluded private islands. It gets worse. The grift continues.
we have a brand new video up at uh, TomHartman.com. And this one's about national health insurance and why and how we really need a single-payer national health care system, whether you call it Medicare for All or you call it single-payer or you call it whatever. You know, Medicare for All it has a lot of appeal because, generally speaking, Medicare is positively viewed. That's what they call it in Canada. It's called Medicare. And, you know, which makes sense, care for people using medicine. We would save at least $150 billion a year just on billing. You've got hospitals in the United States that have entire floors devoted to billing. Hospitals in Canada have one desk with, you know, one or two people sitting at that desk handling the billing. It's just crazy. And people would get better care. They get more comprehensive care. Our entire nation gets healthier. And there's a whole bunch of essentially bullet points to build this argument for Medicare for All over at TomHartman.com. You can check it out. So the grift continues. For example, the CARES Act, this was the act that, you know, this piece of legislation out of the House and Senate, well, out of the House, the Senate went along with it, they gave, you know, you and me 1200 bucks. Uh, that CARES Act provided $175 billion for healthcare systems. But as, let's see who's writing this, Tim Conway is writing for the Independent Media Institute, he writes, however, much of that money went to big corporate health systems already flush with cash instead of sustaining cash-strapped hospitals. HCA Healthcare, for example, made more than $7 billion in profits in the past two years. It received about a billion dollars in stimulus funds. And now they're threatening, that, that company is threatening to lay off thousands of nurses if they refuse to go along with wage freezes and other givebacks. HCA is paying, is still paying its CEO millions. I mean, this, this kind of stuff, you know. Uh, here's another one. This, this guy, uh, Eric Beach. Eric Beach had absolutely no connection with healthcare or with 3M company or with masks or hospitals or any of that stuff. What Eric Beach did is he co-founded a super PAC called the Great American PAC which raised more than $40 million for Donald Trump. So when back in April, when we were out of N95 surgical masks, and the only company in the United States making them was 3M, in fact, Trump issued, a, a, you know, he invoked the Defense Production Act, which authorized FEMA to acquire any and all 3M N95 masks. Four days later, this guy who started the super PAC for Trump, who raised $40 million, he starts a new company called Colt International and sent out letters to hospitals and potential buyers of these masks saying that he basically had, well, that he had, quote, current inventory, end quote, of, quote, several billion units, end quote, of the 95 N95 masks. And that he had this some kind of relationship with 3M. And it turns out that, you know, none of that is true. By the way, the masks are 93 cents. He was selling them marked up for $2.20 each. Plus, he wanted a 10% commission. Uh, 3M has now told CBS News they have no professional relationship with Beach's company, Colt International. But hospitals don't know that. They get a letter from this guy who's you know, affiliated with Trump, saying, hey, I got an in at 3M. I can get you these masks. Give me the order. And then when CBS News went to Beach and said, uh, you know, what's going on? He says, I only work to connect medical buyers with various contacts. And admitted he had no professional relationship with 3M. The IRS is no longer auditing rich people. This is pretty mind-boggling. The IRS reports that uh, it's now auditing poor people at about the same rate that they're auditing the top 1%. Why? Because they can't afford to audit rich people anymore. Their budget was cut radically during the Bush years. Those budget cuts were not restored during the Obama years. And then they got cut even more during the Trump years. Auditing the rich is hard. It takes senior auditors. It takes hours to do these audits, sometimes days or weeks. 
So instead, they're auditing low-income people who are, who are claiming the earned income tax credit. You get a couple thousand bucks if your income's below a certain point. And so they're auditing those people saying, prove to us that you didn't make extra money on the side. Honest to God. 380,000 of these audits last year. 39% of everything the IRS does. Auditing low-income people making less than $15,000 a year. That's who they're going after. Why? Because, you know, Trump and Bush cut their budgets. This watchdog identified 879,000 high-income people who didn't even file tax returns, owing an estimated $45 billion in taxes. And they're just saying, screw you guys. We're not even going to file a friggin' tax return. And out of that 879,000, the IRS ignored 369,000, 42% of them. Didn't do anything. Why? Because they're saying, no, we can't. We don't have the resources. The IRS has told Congress they have no plan to audit rich people until Congress restores their funding. They just don't have the resources. They don't have the auditors. So the grift not only continues, the scams not only continue, The billionaires not only continue getting rich, very rich during this time, half a trillion dollars in added wealth just in the last four months by America's billionaires. Not only is that going on, but the watchdogs, you know, at the same time that Barr and Trump and Pompeo and all these guys, they're all, you know, they're firing, I don't recall if Barr did or not, but they're firing their inspectors general, the people who have oversight over them. The billionaires are firing the IRS, who has oversight over them. And then they're running all these cons and these grifts on the American people. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I'm telling you, if we get another chance, if we get a second chance at having democracy in America, if Trump gets voted out of office and the Republicans lose, we got to do something about this stuff. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. (sighs) 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Proof of Conspiracy, How Trump's International Collusion is Threatening American Democracy by Seth Abramson. This is from the introduction. In late 2015, after Donald Trump has formally announced his candidacy for president, a geopolitical conspiracy emerges overseas whose key participants are the leaders of Russia, Israel, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Egypt. These six men decide that Trump is the antidote to their ills. For Russia, U.S. sanctions. For Israel, the lack of Arab allies. For Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Egypt, perceived threats emanating from Iran. The conspirators commit themselves to doing whatever is necessary to ensure that Donald Trump is elected. Trump's presidential campaign is aware of and benefits from this conspiracy both before and after the 2016 election. On March 19, 2018, British journalist David Hearst, the former chief foreign leader writer for The Guardian, publishes the most important report of his career. Hearst, at one time the Moscow bureau chief at The Guardian, is now editor-in-chief of his own publishing venture, a London-based Middle East watchdog called The Middle East Eye. In the spring of 2018, he reports the existence of a years-long, continent-spanning conspiracy that will eventually envelop the President of the United States, the Red Sea Conspiracy. This book denominates the conspiracy Hearst uncovers as the Red Sea Conspiracy for the simple reason that it is hatched on a yacht in the middle of the Red Sea, a seawater inlet of the Indian Ocean bordered by, among other countries, Saudi Arabia and Egypt. One imagines that in his many years as a correspondent and commentator for the Scotsman, the Huffington Post, Al Jazeera, El Arabi, El Jaid, TRT World, which is Turkish, Masar Al Agan, Egypt, and The Guardian, Hearst never thought he'd stumble on a story as far-reaching in its implications as the Red Sea conspiracy. But he did, and what he found could change the course of history. This book chronicles the events around the globe that preceded and followed the fall 2015 origin of the conspiracy, with a special focus on how the conspiracy prompted Donald Trump and his aides, allies, and associates to covertly collude with six countries, both before and after the 2016 presidential election. Russia, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Israel, Bahrain, and Egypt. Events that began on the Red Sea in 2015 now influence President Trump's foreign policy toward all of these countries, toward other countries not involved in the conspiracy, such as Qatar and Iran, and more broadly toward Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. The story of the Red Sea conspiracy begins with a man named George Nader. As reported by Hearst in the Middle East Eye, toward the end of 2015, Nader, then an advisor to the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nayan, known as MBZ, convened, with his patron's permission, a summit of some of the Middle East's most powerful leaders. Gathered on a boat in the Red Sea in the fall of 2015 were Mohammed bin Salman, known as MBS, Deputy Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, who would shortly become the heir apparent to the throne of the Saudi Kingdom. MZB himself, by 2015 the de facto ruler of the United Arab Emirates. Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, the President of Egypt. Prince Salman bin Hamad, the Crown Prince of Bahrain, and King Abdullah II of Jordan. 
Nader, the improbable maestro of these rulers clandestine get-together, intended the plan he posed to the men to include the nation of Libya, but no representative from that nation attended the gathering. Of the leaders aboard the yacht, two, MBS and MBZ, are already close. According to a New Yorker interview with Richard A. Clark, a counterterrorism advisor to Presidents Barack Obama and George W. Bush, MBS and MBZ, quote, talk on the phone all day to each other, end quote. The Red Sea meeting, although technically convened by Nader, is a means for MBZ to advance ambitions that he and MBS have designed together. The two sunny Arab leaders' intention, Hearst records, is to remake the Middle East with the covert assistance of a highly placed American politician. They intend to do this by first renaming and reconstituting the membership of the six-member Gulf Cooperation Council, the GCC, which in 2015 comprises Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, and Qatar, while reorienting, too, its regional ambitions and global alliances. The proposed GCC realignment would evict Kuwait, Oman, and Qatar from the Council and replace these three countries with Egypt, Jordan, and Libya, thereby eliminating the entity's historical association with the Persian Gulf and remaking it as, instead, an alliance constituting, quote, an elite regional group of six countries which would supplant the GCC and form the nucleus of a coalition of pro-U.S. and pro-Israeli states in the Middle East, end quote. According to two sources briefed on the 2015 Red Sea Summit, quote, Nader said this group of states could become a force in the region that the United States government could depend on to counter the influence of Turkey and Iran, end quote. Prior to 2015, Turkey and Saudi Arabia had intermittently enjoyed strong diplomatic ties. Book Proof of Conspiracy by Seth Abramson. And uh, John in Auburn, California. Hey, John, what's up? What's up, Tom? What I wanted to talk about was Seth Abramson's book. And um, mm-hmm. it brought up something I've been wondering about for a couple of years. I think it was in 2018 on July 4th that Richard Shelby, Ron Johnson, five other American Fascist Party senators and one congresswoman went to Russia for three days, one of those days being the, the 4th, 4th of July. July. Yeah. yeah, And I was wondering if anybody ever found out what they were doing over there, I think, at about that time. We had our change in Miss Lindsay from South Carolina. Lindsay became a uh, a Trump dog. And uh, I'm just trying to get information, especially in light of Seth Abramson's book. What gives? Did they just want to see some yeah. good ballet? Could they not have gone to Italy and seen good ballet or somewhere else in the world? Yeah, I, to the best of my knowledge, John, nobody knows what happened when all those Republicans spent the 4th of July in Russia on, the, I think it was 2018, two years ago. The, the question is, why doesn't anybody want to know? <laughs> yeah. Why, yeah, why that's, has nothing that's sort been of, made you know, of that? I mean, what, look, at, look at what the Republicans have been saying about Bernie Sanders going to Russia for his honeymoon. It literally was not for his honeymoon, but that's how they're characterizing it. But it was shortly after he got married and he went to the sister city of Burlington, Vermont. He was the mayor of Burlington and there's a sister city in Russia. He and his wife went there, you know, as an official delegation from Vermont, from Burlington. But, you know, that was 40 years ago or 30 some odd years ago. And they're still criticizing him. Oh, my God, Bernie Sanders went to Russia. And now you've got to Somehow that makes a little more sense than what these seven American Fascist Party Congress people are doing over there. When they should, yeah, why weren't they home in their home state eating hot dogs and, yeah, and watching fireworks? Yeah, there's something there's something going on, and and they spent three, uh, you know three days to... with Lavrov with Sir, Sergey Lavrov. The simple kind of literal answer to your question is that the money that was appropriated by Congress, because it has not been spent, it has not been borrowed yet, basically. It hasn't been taken out of the Treasury and allocated. So it's just, you know, it's it's still, ava- you know, arguably available because of the appropriation, but it hasn't been spent. 
Uh, The larger question, though, Aaron, is, you know, what's going on is that, you know, Steve Bannon said that Donald Trump's mission was to deconstruct the administrative state. The administrative state is also known as the government of the United States of America. And if you're going to deconstruct the government, you're taking apart the government of America. Why would you do that? Well, because you hate America, because you think that oligarchs should run this country, that this should be an oligarchy or kleptocrats like Donald Trump should be running this country. You think that we should be aligned with China and Russia and and the Philippines and and Turkey and other countries that are run by essentially autocrats and and that have a, a, shall we say, a major problem with oligarchy at the very least. And that that's what's going on. I mean, that that's just absolutely what's going on. Aaron, thanks for the call. I, I assume your question was uh, rhetorical. Catherine in Baltimore, Maryland. Hey, Catherine, what's up? SDNY is investigating Deutsche Bank and the Turkish bank, Halk Bank, for Halk Bank allegedly evading the U.S. sanctions against Iran. And Bolton wrote in his book that Trump told Erdogan at the G20 summit that those were Obama's people in the Southern District and he was going to replace them and the problem would be fixed. He didn't have to worry about them okay. investigating this Halk Bank. And they're also investigating Rudy Giuliani and Lev Parnas. So, and yep. probably his taxes too. So, I mean, it's just so dirty. Uh, yeah, I don't understand it is. why the D.C. Bar Association hasn't disbarred bar. Do you? I mean, there's a change.org um, uh, petition with 28,000 people asking, you know, listing all the things that he's done. And I uh, just don't understand why they haven't acted. Do you? I don't know enough about how bar associations work to, to, you know, I don't know if you have to have a member of the bar who brings the complaint, if there has to be a certain threshold, if it has to come from the board of the bar, you know, I just don't know how that works. So I, I, but that's a good point. Assuming that he's licensed to practice law in D.C., which I think is probably a fairly safe assumption. Yeah, Um, Yeah, he is. He's he's licensed in D.C. and one other state, I think New York, maybe. Yeah, that would make sense. I would assume that some of these prosecutors that have signed on, you know, former prosecutors that have signed on to these letters, you know, regarding what he did with the Mueller report, I I would think some of them have made some complaints. It's it's, I'm scratching my head on that one. Yeah, a lot of them have to be members of the D.C. Bar. Again, Catherine, I'm sorry, I, I just don't know how that practice works, but I agree with you that that would be, at the very least, a great place to start. Catherine, thank you, and thanks for watching Free Speech TV there in Baltimore. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Did you know that Ronald Reagan committed treason to become president in 1980 and George Herbert Walker Bush was in on it and he avoided being prosecuted for this in 1992 with a little help from Bill Barr? It's on page 116 of my book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. 
Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back. Jerry in San Francisco. Hey, Jerry, what's up? Hey, Tom. I was listening to Friday in your uh, analysis of Chief Justice Roberts' decisions, kind of throwing some cold water on people who were excited about his swing vote on DACA. And, uh, yeah, he didn't rule against Trump on DACA. He ruled against Trump's lawyers right. filling out the paperwork wrong and said, here's how to fill it out right, which Trump pointed out in his rally on Saturday. That's right. And so I looked up and I said, well, let's see where, where he was on swing votes as Chief Justice. He was the swing vote and went with the right wing 11 out of 15 cases since he's been uh, Chief Justice, voting with Kavanaugh 89% of the time and Kagan and Sotomayor uh, 10% of the time. So right. not a... Yeah, this guy's no liberal. Record. But I was and he's not Earl Warren. He's not somebody who is simply having an epiphany and deciding, gee, I'll do the right thing. He's just a Republican hack. John Roberts yeah, and I, always has been. Right. And so we have two cases coming up. June Medical Services versus Russo, a big, big time uh, reproductive rights case that comes mm-hmm. out of Louisiana. And then uh, Trump's taxes. Is there any hope <laughs> that he could be the the swing vote on uh, that going down, or you think both of on those the are going to thing, Yeah, on the Trump taxes thing, I don't know enough mm-hmm. about how that case is constructed and what the specific arguments are to give you an informed uh, you know, opinion, Jerry. Yeah. On June, on the healthcare case, what you're looking at is the court hearing arguments that are virtually identical to arguments they heard a couple of years ago when they, uh, and I'm sorry, I don't have the information right in front of me, but it was, in a, it was in Texas, as I recall, and the court narrowly upheld the right, uh, you know, of a woman to get an abortion in Texas in that case. Wasn't and Kennedy now, the swing vote on that one? I think so, but I, I'd have to go yeah. back and look. I, you know, I don't want to yeah. just say without being certain. Sure. And Kennedy, of course, has been replaced by Kavanaugh. And so there is every reason to believe that what's going to happen here is that women are going to lose their right to an abortion at the state level. And yeah, Yeah. and it's just, you know, it's not going to be a good thing. And, uh, you know, with regard to Trump's taxes, I, you know, like I said, I just don't know. But I'm I'm very concerned about that case. And we will probably hear that decision this week from what I'm. I mean, the case has already been argued. So. I think they kind of softened us up with some anti-Trump decisions, and then they're going to mm-hmm. hand out a bunch of pro-Trump decisions on the back end. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Anyhow, Jerry, thanks for the call. I, I, you know, I'm sorry I don't know about the taxes one. I mean, I'm, it's, I, I have to do my own deep dive on that. Robin in Kingston, Washington. Hey, Robin, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? Well, I want to kind of build on a meme that I have been sharing with you for a while and celebrate what I think happened in Tulsa over the weekend. And that is, I have been trying to get us progressives and others to basically ignore Trumpsters, shun them, having 
debates and discussions with them is really pointless. They're really cast in their ways and thoughts and are unlikely to change. I'm not sure that's true, Robin. If that was true, the almost 50% support that Donald Trump had two and a half years ago wouldn't be 30% right now. They're not Trumpsters. You, you still, you vote, still have 95% of the Republicans. Are, I, I'm, I are, didn't I, say Republicans. I, I said Trumpsters, okay? And it's the right. Trumpsters that go to the rallies. And I think the best statement that we could make nationwide as uh, progressives, liberals, Democrats, or whatever, is to not go to protest outside any of his rallies and just not show up and shun him. He needs attention. And if we take that... You know, that's what Germans did in 1937 when Hitler had his Nuremberg rally. There were no protests, or there were, actually, there were some small protests, and those protests were dealt with brutally anymore. We're not in 1937. We have studied the growth of Nazism and all that kind of stuff beforehand. And we have failed this to learn a from it. and a strategy. This is, this is something we, we basically, in my opinion, should do. The more energy we turn into supporting our own points of view and the positive side of our hearts, and the less energy we use to defend our you know, to touch our bad side of hearts and overreact to Trumpsters and this really horrible regime he has created, the more successful we're going to be not only in the fall but going forward. We should be using our time and energies doing what we want to have happen in our own self-governance and stop just reacting to every Trump's tweet. And yeah, whatever. Robin, that's sort the of like saying, you know, we're sitting here in this restaurant and, hey, the kitchen's on fire out there, but this salad sure is good. Let's talk about the salad. <laughs> I'm not willing to go there, Robin. I'm sorry. Bruce in Austin, Texas. Hey, Bruce, what's up? Hey, Tom, love the show. Hey, so you were having a discussion on Friday about the um, school books in Texas, and let's not forget it's mm-hmm. the religious right that took over the school board and really tried to soured down what was going on in textbooks. Like, women with Mm -hmm. briefcases was an assault on them. Like, it was just horrible what they did, and they're still there. So I was in the middle of that stuff and watched it and couldn't believe it. The second thing I wanted to say was the pull yourself up by your bootstraps reminds me of when Douglas Adams said, you learn how to fly by throwing yourself at the ground and missing. And I think maybe Hmm. they're just being funny and they don't know it. And that's all I really wanted to say. And and thank you for the show. I love this show. Sure. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you very much. And thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. (laughs) Douglas Adams, boy, it's been a long time since I've even thought about, you know, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and all that. Bruce, thank you. And apologies if I got the title wrong. I'm pretty sure that was the title. Um, Anyhow, it's the Tom Hartman program, The True People's Media. We'll be back with more of your thoughts as well as mine and a little of the news of the day right after this. Stick around. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is by Robin Marty. It's titled Handbook for a Post-Row, as in Roe v. Wade, for a Post-Row America. And the cut line on the front says, The future without Roe is coming straight at us. This is the roadmap you need for the tough times ahead. This is from Chapter 7, page 101, titled Knowing Your Comfort Zone, Why Civil Disobedience. Access to abortion and birth control isn't just a health care issue and an economic issue, it's also a civil rights issue. And like every civil rights battle, gains are made through acts of civil disobedience or working outside the legal framework. Married people officially gained the right to access birth control only after Estelle Griswold, the executive director of the Planned Parenthood League of Connecticut, opened a clinic and began offering contraception in direct opposition to the 1960s state law forbidding it. That right was extended to single people in 1972 after Bill Baird was arrested in 1967 for purposely flaunting the Massachusetts law and publicly providing contraceptives to an unmarried woman during a college lecture. The Clergy Consultation Service on Abortion spent much of the 1960s and early 70s prior to the Roe decision assisting pregnant people in finding safe abortions either from legal or illegal providers throughout the country and across the borders. And there were groups like Jane's Collective that provided the service themselves, even at the risk of their own arrest. Today, people are highlighting a number of issues through acts of civil disobedience. North Carolina had weekly mass arrests at their state capitol during Moral Mondays protests, while the Black Lives Matter movement physically closed highways with their bodies. And of course, when Brett Kavanaugh was appointed to the Supreme Court, hundreds of activists were arrested, some multiple times, for interrupting his hearings, protesting in the Hart Building when it became clear the 
Senate Judiciary was not going to investigate claims of past sexual assault. Some protesters even blocked the stairs prior to Kavanaugh's swearing-in ceremony. As our society recedes further into racism, sexism, xenophobia, and classism, opposing the power structure through nonviolent means grows more imperative. Aaron Matson, the co-founder of the reproductive rights group Repro Action and Teen Vogue, wrote, If Roe is overturned or gutted, it is certain that some states will propose and enact some abortion bans, new abortion bans. Again, nonviolent civil disobedience should remain on the table, this time targeting state and municipal level lawmakers. We must remember that while in several contexts, abortion rights supporters lack immediate political power, in spite of the fact that nearly 7 in 10 Americans do not want to see Roe overturned, we always retain the power of using our bodies to stop or slow the machinery of state repression. End of quote. Matson adds, ultimately, it's up to activists to decide. Are we willing to break convention if lobbying fails? Are we willing to strategically expose ourselves to the risks of arrest? And if we are not, are we willing to look into the eyes of the future generations who will be incarcerated for abortions, miscarriages, and pregnancy complications? End of quote. Repro Action is a growing network of state-based activists that conducts political events, teach-ins, and other direct actions to increase access to abortion and birth control services. They currently have national campaigns as well as individual campaigns in D.C., Virginia, Missouri, Arkansas, and Wisconsin. You can join up with or financially support Repro Action to increase their national and local reach. Subchapter title, Is Civil Disobedience Right for Me? What are you willing to do to make sure that you, the people you know, or even total strangers, have access to contraception and abortion care, especially once more abortion options become illegal? Are you willing to be arrested if you participate in direct action or nonviolent protest? Is helping someone obtain abortion pills worth a potential prison sentence? Would you drive a teen to another state to get an abortion if that drive makes you an abortion facilitator and thus a federal criminal? You may believe you're willing to risk everything to help someone get an abortion, and that may well be what is needed in some cases in a post-Roe America. But make sure that you've really thought out all the consequences of such a radical approach. These are the questions you should be asking yourself now before new laws are put into place. One small silver lining of the Trump era is the way it has energized so many people to actively resist the political agenda. There are more activists, donors, candidates, and protesters than there have been in decades. And that means lots of people who can work together and step in when and where people are needed. But in certain geographic areas, it is and will continue to be harder to find those with the ability and privilege to do resistance work. For example, with the Trump administration's increasing militarization of ICE and border security, checkpoints into and out of America will be more scrutinized than ever before. With a population that in many cases is literally trapped in places like the Rio Grande Valley or Las Cruces, where undocumented people can neither leave the country for services nor go further into the U.S. for care, the need for additional action and people who have the willingness and ability to act may be greater than in New York City or the Bay Area. Maybe you have a very specific skill set. You might be medically trained, have a legal background, or maybe you've done counseling or social work, or you're a member of the clergy. These are people who will add a lot of value to the movement, especially if it turns out civil disobedience is the right way to proceed. Ask yourself if you're the only person who can do the thing you're considering doing, or if there's a number of people like you who are planning to step up. Then ask yourself what sort of risk you may be running and how those factors balance out. It's almost impossible to be a solitary activist these days, but there are spaces where you can manage. Letter writing campaigns, social media campaigns, information distribution, and fundraising can all be accomplished in a fairly solitary environment. Handbook for a post-Roe America. Sam in Canton, North Carolina. Hey, Sam, what's up? Last year, I started looking up the figures of the venues that Trump was not filling up last year. Now, last year, he was speaking in venues that would hold 5,500, maybe 7,500 people. And he was not filling those venues up. He was maybe two-thirds right. of the... Yeah. So, for a Saturday, he was trying to fill a venue that held 19,000. And he, again, average, you know, came up with about 6,000 people, which is what he was doing last year. What genius decided that he could fill a, state, fill a venue of 19,000 people? This is just Brad usual, uh, usual lies. It's just not, yeah, whoever, right. whoever decided that needs, uh, needs to be job hunting. One other quick well, thing Brad about this. One other quick thing. The University of Tulsa 
their Golden Hurricanes is the name of their football team. Last year averaged 22,541 ticket sales per game. <laughs> so wow. Trump did about a third of, of what the, and that's not even a big school uh, program. They get on right. national TV every now and then when they're playing some big school. So, yeah, right. he's not even as popular there as a football team is. <laughs> yeah, you know, John Tesh filled that venue, you know, in the last couple of years, but Trump couldn't pull it off. So did Nickelback <laughs> and, and Sean on that. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, Trump is now planning on going to Arizona. He's talking about giving a speech, and who knows what that means. Is, is there some, uh, you know, local right-wing sheriff's association that's having a convention yeah. that has invited him to speak, or is he going to try something? We'll learn that later in the day today. But I, I think... Go ahead. <laughs> he did speak at a high school gymnasium, high school basketball gymnasium in South Carolina last year. <laughs> That, oh, that held around, that, that, he might have filled that one up, but that only held With a, a thousand people. people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or a few hundred. Yeah, I think the bloom is off the rose. I think, I think what you're seeing is that the people who are still following Trump are the ones who have burrowed into this, into this bubble world. Alexis in Brookline, Massachusetts. Hey, Alexis, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Hi, thanks so much for taking my call. I wanted to ask about two things on the same subject, about China's involvement, possible, probable involvement in the upcoming election. First of all, could the voting machines that are made in China, that are newly brought to our country, could those play a part in some kind of, you know, last-ditch, uh-oh, we're going to lose, we can use this fail-safe to ensure that we win? And then also, is Trump's bravado recently against China? Could that also be a plan he had made with uh, Xi Jinping to make it seem like there is nothing going on here, that there is no problems? Because, as you know, China also has been doing like, oh, America planted the virus, you know, their thing, too. So could this have been a deal that they had made? Yeah, I suspect... First of all, with regard to the voting machines, yes. I mean, that's a that's a very large concern. Most of our electronics are made in China. It's starting to freak out the military as well. The whole Huawei thing is um, not good news, you know, that the Trump administration is caving to China on Huawei. But the voting machines are made in China, by and large. I believe all of them are made in China. And that can, should concern all of us. Uh, with regard to Trump making a deal with Xi, saying essentially, I'm going to attack you in public, wink, wink, nod, nod, you know, in private, we all know what we're working for, which is the end of democracy and a rise of oligarchy. You know, yes, I absolutely believe that that's exactly what's going on. And Bolton's book confirms that in some part. And it's very, very troubling, Alexis. You know, I'm just shocked. I, you know, if, if this, if Obama was accused of these things, or any Democrat, was accused of even 10% of what Trump is doing. The Republicans would be screaming treason. They'd be calling for, you know, uh, firing squads. Uh, it, I mean, the, the rhetoric would be... Not even a question. Oh, yeah. And now you've got, you know, uh, Jerry Nadler, the, the chairman of the Judiciary yeah. Committee in the House, where impeachment originates, being asked, well, should we try, you know, should we impeach him again? And should we impeach Bill Barr? And he's like, nah, it'll be a waste of time because of the Senate. I don't think it's a waste of time. Bolton. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, I, and, and frankly, I, thank you, Alexis. And I don't think it's a waste of time, even if you don't succeed in removing them, to put on the historical record for all time that these guys are corrupt. I see nothing wrong with it. Jeff in Portland. Hey, Jeff, what's up? Hey, good morning, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. And I'm 100% with you on mask wearing. Uh, please keep preaching it. However, I do want to disagree with you. I'm with you in principle, but I want to disagree with you about calling for a second round of impeachment. You know, we have this trio of crises, the pandemic, the economy with 42 million unemployed, and of course, the police brutality and racial injustice. And all three of these crises have been created or greatly exacerbated by the corruption and incompetence and racism of this so-called administration. But the reason I'm against another impeachment, Tom, is because I believe it's time for the Democratic Party, led by Biden and Pelosi, to step up the effort to make an affirmative case to address people's needs and get out the vote in November. 
In other words, it's not enough to call it the white national oligarchy that Trump and 40 years of Reaganism have created. We need Democratic leadership to offer clear alternatives right now for racial justice and economic justice to draw a stark contrast to the full-blown fascism that a second Trump term would bring. So, Tom, if the, if the Democratic Party can harness and engage all the courage and righteousness that's in the streets right now, I believe we can landslide this greedy racist in chief right out the door and all his shameless enablers in Congress. And and that, to me, would be the best bulwark against him trying to pull any dirty tricks or stunts between November and January 20th, which you've been concerned about. What do you think? Yeah, I think you make a good point, Jeff. Uh, In fact, you make a very good point. You may well be right. It could be something that dilutes the efforts that that we've been talking about and um, might not be such a good idea. Let me ponder that. My concern is this. Donald Trump has six months until January and until he has to leave office, assuming that he gets voted out, which is, you know, looking like that's what's going to happen. You know, God only knows. But he has six months in which he can do an extraordinary amount of damage. In a six-month period in early 1933, Hitler basically ended democracy in Germany. I don't know blow by blow the history of Mussolini's rise to power in Italy, but I would be surprised if it took him more than six months. Typically, what happens is you have this relatively long period, a year or so, and in this case it had been three years, where a fascist leader is consolidating power slowly, carefully, purging their their administration or purging the government of the people who would challenge them. Trump now wants to get rid of Esper, his defense secretary, for example. Purging the people, you know, he got rid of uh, Jeff Sessions and replaced him with Bill Barr. Purging them of people who would challenge him and replacing them with people who are not just toadies, but enthusiastic toadies, who, who believe in fascism. And there's a certain point where a critical mass is achieved. And it's sort of like we, we see the virus, you know, going from, you know, uh, one death to 10 deaths to the 20 deaths to the 50 deaths. To, and within three weeks, you know, you're at 5,000 deaths and then you're at 50,000 deaths a month later, a month later. That's how rapidly the flip happens when governments fall apart. That's what happened in, in Hungary with Orban. Orban was president for several years before he basically flipped that country in less than a year to fascism. I wrote an op-ed about this. You can find it over on uh, Alternate. And so my concern is that there is a very real possibility that Donald Trump will end the American experiment before, either before the election or before January 20th. And I think the most likely window would probably be between November 3rd and January 20th. And the only thing that I can think of to head that off would be a successful impeachment. Now, the question is, has he inflamed enough Republicans that they would go along with this? It doesn't look like he has from what Casey Hunt has been reporting over at NBC you know, two days in a row, she's been asking Republicans about Trump. And the only one who has been willing to speak out was Lisa Murkowski. And Trump came out and said that he would fly to Alaska and campaign for anybody, you know, for the Democrat who runs against Lisa Murkowski. So, you know, basically what he's saying to all the other Republicans is, you guys better stay terrified. Now, that's what fascists do. And so I'm really concerned, but I absolutely get your point. And if this were a more normal time, and we were not in the midst of all these crises that, that I think are leading us toward fascism, I'd completely agree with you, Jeff. But I, you know, I, I could probably argue your position as well as I just argued mine. This is, uh, this is a perilous time. Am I making sense? I mean, the only thing I would say is us putting our faith in Republicans acting in good conscience is, is I think, so much riskier. I mean, time and again. Well, it's only going to take six know, or seven of them. Yeah, I mean... We already have you know, one, maybe two. I, I would just rather put my faith in the energy and all the people out in the streets right now, keeping them in the fold. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I absolutely get it. Jeff, thank you. That's a very thought-provoking comment, and, uh, you know, I'm always willing to learn. I appreciate it. This is the Tom Hartman Program, the place where despair is not an option. to the Tom Hartman Program. Hey, Tom Hartman here. Just wanted to give you a heads up that we have an absolutely free newsletter. You can subscribe to it over at TomHartman.com. And every day, Sue, who works on our newsletter, puts together what we call Sue's Daily Stack. It's literally a link to every story I have referenced on the air in the program. 
And she compiles these throughout the program and then gets the newsletter together and it goes out an hour or two after the show is off the air. And it's just absolutely extraordinary and something I think you'll find really useful. So check it out at TomHartman.com. Welcome to the Tom Hartman Book Club. Today we're reading from Hannah Arendt's book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. And uh, I've known about this book, read little pieces of it for decades. I mean, it's a, it's the classic work on totalitarianism. It's long and there's a lot of words in it. But for this moment, Elliot Lustig was tweeting about Donald Trump. This is back when Donald Trump was talking about three to five million illegal immigrants voting, right? And he said, Hannah Arendt, in her book, The Origin of Totalitarianism, provides a helpful guide for interpreting the language of fascists. She noted how decent liberals of 1930s Germany would fact check the Nazis' bizarre claims about things like Jews as if they were meant to be factual. What they failed to understand, Arendt suggests, is that the Nazi Jew hating was not a statement of fact, but a declaration of intent. So when someone would blame the Jews for Germany's defeat in World War I, naive people would counter by saying, there's no evidence of that. What the Nazis were doing was not describing what was true, but what would have to be true in order to justify what they planned to do next. So did three million illegals cast vote in the election? Clearly not. But fact-checking is just a way of playing along with their game. What Trump is saying is not that three million illegals voted. What he's saying is, I'm going to steal the voting rights of millions of Americans. So that's kind of a contemporary frame for this book. So let's read from the book itself. Here, this is from page 348. And she's talking about totalitarian movements and how they use propaganda, how they communicate with the public, and the difference between terror and propaganda, the the kind of terror that they can inculcate by, by just kind of randomly arresting people. Pretty much everybody's committed some kind of crime at some point, right? Arresting people, and on the one hand, that's the terror, or convincing the people. Jesus, totalitarian movements use socialism and racism by emptying them of their utilitarian content, the interests of a class or a nation. The form of infallible protection in which these concepts were presented has become more important than their content. The chief qualification of a mass leader has become unending infallibility. He can never admit an error. The assumption of infallibility, moreover, is based not so much on superior intelligence as on the correct interpretation of the essentially reliable forces in history and nature, forces which neither defeat nor ruin and prove wrong because they're bound to assert themselves in the long run. Mass leaders in power have one concern, which overrides all utilitarian consideration, to make their predictions come true. The Nazis did not hesitate to use, at the end of the war, the concentrated force of their still-intact organization— to bring about as complete a destruction of Germany as possible in order to make true their prediction that the German people would be ruined in case of defeat. The propaganda effect of infallibility, the striking success of posing as a mere interpreting agent of predictable forces, has encouraged in totalitarian dictators the habit of announcing their political intentions in the form of prophecy. The most famous example is Hitler's announcement to the German Reichstag in January 1939, quote, I want today once again to make a prophecy in case the Jewish financiers succeed one more in hurling the people into a world war. The result will be the annihilation of the Jewish race in Europe, end of quote. Translated into non-totalitarian language, this means I intend to make war and I intend to kill the Jews of Europe. Similarly, Stalin, in the great speech before the Central Committee of the Communist Party in 1930, in which he prepared the physical liquidation of intra-party right and left deviationists, described them as representatives of dying classes. This definition not only gave the argument its specific sharpness, but also announced in totalitarian style the physical destruction of those whose dying out had just been prophesied. In both instances, the same objective is accomplished. The liquidation is fitted into a historical process in which man not only suffers or does or suffers what, according to some immutable law, is bound to happen anyway. As soon as the execution of the victims has been carried out, the prophecy becomes a retrospective alibi. Nothing happened but what has already been predicted. It does not matter whether the laws of history spell the doom of the classes and the representatives or whether the laws of nature exterminate all those elements, democracies, Jews, Eastern subhumans, the untermenschen, or the incurably sick. They are not fit to live anyway. Incidentally, Hitler, too, spoke of dying classes that ought to be, quote, eliminated without much ado, end quote. 
This method, like other totalitarian propaganda methods, is foolproof only after the movements have seized power. Then all debate about the truth or falsity of a totalitarian dictator's prediction is as weird as arguing with a potential murderer about whether his future victim is dead or alive. Since by killing the person in question, the murderer can provide prompt proof of the correctness of his statement. The only valid argument under such conditions is promptly to rescue the person whose death has been predicted. Before mass leaders seize the power to fit reality to their lies, their propaganda is marked by its extreme contempt for facts as such. For in their opinion, fact depends entirely on the power of the man who can fabricate it. The assertion that the Moscow subway is the only one in the world is a lie only so long as the Bolsheviks have not the power to destroy all the others. From Hannah Arendt's book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.